Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book 2 Free Will and Other Compulsions A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Danny Shade Andrea Fender Mark Smith Michael LaMangelo Derek Moore Stephanie Sawyer Kim the Comic Book Goddess George Clinsos Miss Calendar Nathan Lowell With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence Listener discretion is advised And now, episode 2 Hello, I'm Alistair Stewart of Pseudopod, Escape Pod, and look, I'm on Twitter at, at Alistair Stewart, which is A-L-A-S-D-A-I-R-S-T-U-A-R-T, and it's it's really probably best if you just follow me there. It'll save us all a lot of time. You're listening to episode two of Free Will, and this is the story so far. In Washington, Senator William Shelley has done his bits to appease his blackmailers, but he still has more surprises up his sleeve. His son-in-law, Percy Scott, stabbed and left for dead, managed to survive in the hold of a cargo ship. It's docked. Somewhere. Meanwhile, Cassie has left Nineveh, but now is stuck on Kyrie with her two co-conspirators, and a raft of plans only half finished. Whilst in the inner solar system, Alyssa Hartman is still trapped with Joss Kyle, and is still determined to find out where she is going. Meanwhile, on the lunar surface, a lonely girl makes an impossible run across the airless surface towards Lunar City and freedom. And now, episode two of Free Will and Other Compulsions. Chapter 5 Lunar Surface, 22 November 2129. The shadow on the lunar surface skittered from a lope to a trudge. She had to keep going. By her best reckoning, she'd only made 300 clicks in the last 96 hours. With 1,500 still to go, the hike looked longer than when she started, and if she didn't find a way to go faster, she wasn't going to make it to Luna City before she ran out of air. After an hour of stumbling along the ground, the rubble strewing the plain grew up into a field of massive boulders. She dodged between them as well as her jellied muscles could manage, trying to keep her bearing as close as she could to the course plotted by her helmet-borne GPS. The ground in front of her grew more stubborn with every step until at last it wouldn't give any more. Her legs wouldn't budge, not for a single step more. Without noticing the transition, she sank to her knees then fell slowly to the ground next to a large boulder and fell into sleep as colorless as the sky. Shrieking static woke her up. She clawed at the outside of her helmet, writhing around on the hard pan basalt until some part of her remembered to hit the mute switch with her chin. The noise stopped. She opened her eyes and saw rock in front of her in her helmet lights, still shining. They'd probably been shining since she fell asleep, drawing their recharge power from her body heat. Her left arm itched, but when she tried to move it, she had no luck. She reached her right arm across to it and ran into the ground, which wasn't where she expected it to be. Somewhere in her sleep, she'd gotten turned around. She closed her eyes and tried to get a feel for which direction was up, but the skin press suit pushed in on her more or less equally from all angles, and her mind still swam with a morass of dream images colliding with the ringing in her ears. 
Up and down meant gravity. If there was something she could drop or dangle, there wasn't a lot of dust on the basalt pan, but she had the oxygen bottle on her belt. She unclipped it and reached her hand up over her head and dangled the carabiner. It fell and clanked against her helmet. She was laying on her left side, so the rock in front of her was a rock and not the ground. Somehow she'd gotten wedged up against it in her sleep. She heaved and wriggled and pulled herself up to her feet, tottering a bit and bracing herself against the rock once she got there. Her left arm, now that it wasn't pinned underneath her with its blood supply strangling off, worked properly. She hopped up and down a few times and stretched as well as she could, trying to shake the sleep off. How long had she been asleep? She punched up the HUD from her wrist control. Twelve hours. Her stomach sank. That was twelve hours she couldn't afford. She reached forward with her lips and sucked on the water nipple, then shifted her head to the left and tongued the pill dispenser. A distasteful little pile of marbles, one amphetamine, two sugars, one salt, and one vitamin, popped into her mouth, and she sucked them down with another mouthful of water. Okay, that was done. She'd be back in running shape in fifteen minutes, despite the searing pain in all her muscles as they warmed up. There was nothing left for it but to start walking, keep putting the kilometers behind her. The GPS pointed her north, but she still had to dodge between the boulders, and who knew how much farther they'd stretch. It would be worth it once she got there. Once she got there, she'd need a cover story. She hadn't thought about a story before she left, she'd just gotten out as soon as she could before her wedding. Before she'd fallen asleep, or at least before her brain got too tired to think anymore, she'd considered the issue of names, but hadn't gotten anywhere. Now, with the drugs hopping up her system, she had to keep busy, and it was as good a place to start as any. New Zion was loud about the fact that they didn't share information with Luna City, so they probably wouldn't be able to figure out where she came from. She could tell them any story she wanted. She could use any name she wanted. She didn't have to stick to Emma Hale anymore. It was a stupid name anyway, but she didn't know anything better. Every name she'd ever heard was a reminder of the authority of the church and the prophet and the quorum and the holy war against Salt Lake City and those things she didn't ever want to think of again. Luna City was supposed to be a sewer of depravity where no one believed in the words of the prophet and only knew enough about Jesus to take his name in vain. When she was there, she'd never even find another Mormon and she didn't want to carry that filthy label around with her anyway. God and all his prophets and angels and Latter-day Saints could have the whole universe if they wanted. But they'd never have her. No matter what. Never again. Nobody had even shown up yet. Had they noticed she was missing? The thought that she wasn't worth the trouble to chase took some of the excitement out of running. What if she could have gotten away with refusing to marry? If nobody cared... No. If they let her get away with that, she'd just have spent her life as a pariah. The pain in her muscles was starting to fade as the drugs kicked in. She tried a couple long strides and everything seemed to work right. The surface was dark at night. Dark enough that she still felt like she was asleep. Asleep? She hadn't just woken up on her own. Her suit woke her up. The radio static... She jutted her chin forward and tripped the radio switch. Be a trial leading northwest here. You think she's hiding up in the boulders? Boulders. They were close. Hope you got wedged or fell down and need some help. A third voice. 
Just as businesslike, but not so rough. There'll be hell to pay if we don't find our lives soon. Keep moving. She broke into a run. The rocks in front of her started to thin. A couple hundred yards ahead, there was a big one, maybe big enough to climb up and see how far behind they were, maybe figure out where to hide, get her up off the plane so there wouldn't be any other chance of leaving tracks. On the third stride, something yanked hard at her belt and she flew backwards, landing hard on her oxygen bottle and bruising her ribs as her body bent back around it. Something dragged her back. She scrambled with the tether, working the carabiner loose from her belt. The rope holding her spare oxygen bottle flew backwards. The girl flailed over onto her side and rolled to her feet, coming face to face with a man twice her height in a skin press suit, his feet wide apart and ready to spring, and a coil of rope in his hands. Chapter 6 Location Unknown 13 November 2129 When you see the white light, you're supposed to step through the door. You're supposed to step through and face him so he can tell you whether to stand with the sheep or with the goats. Then he would tell the goats that he never knew them because they didn't do justice, they didn't do mercy. He would send them down into the fire, to the worm, and the darkness. Percy clawed and clung to the edge of the tunnel, blinding, searing. Every time he blinked his eyes, the light stabbed him, but he wouldn't step through. He couldn't, not yet, not until he found his redemption, or he'd be shuffled off with the goats. The beep, beep, beep that filled the tunnel seemed to pulse with the light. The voices around him kept saying things like heparin and O-negative and suture. Death wasn't supposed to make sense anyway. It never did. Life, on the other hand, maybe death wouldn't be so bad after all. Chapter 7. Kyrie, bound for Luna. 17 November 2129. I'm sick of you. Jim Hartman's voice came from somewhere behind her feet. You know where the space sickness bags are. For her part, Cassie was floating comfortably above her console, chatting with Val through her PPD, checking up on fuel use, checking navigation curves, and walking through the dozens of other items that had to be looked at during a skew flip. It was the price of keeping Val on a short leash. She could let the ship's AI take care of the whole thing, but if Val got taken down by any malfunction, it would leave Kyrie plummeting between planets like a lost missile looking for a target. That's not what I mean, and you know it. Cassie looked ahead to the edge of the nav blister and saw Jim's image in the glass. He hovered just inside the open door of the bridge. Are you on my bridge? Oh, yes. The great and powerful green lady must keep her little fiefdom inviolate. So the man had a vocabulary. That made him marginally less uninteresting. I went through the posted procedure. I emailed you from my quarters. I hailed the bridge. And I'll get back to you when I'm good and ready. In the glass, she saw him draw back a meter or so, putting him just outside her bridge. He rapped on the bulkhead. Captain Orenthal? She cleared her PPD screen and stuck it to one of the Velcro pads on her belt. Yes? I'm here to request access to the sensor and communications array. Request denied. Anything else? Yes. I'd like to use the sensor and communications array. His jaw shifted slightly, as if he were slowly grinding his teeth down to herbivore flatness. I can say no as many times as you'd like, or I can confine you to your quarters for the rest of the skew flip. As she spoke, 
Reeves' hulking frame rose through the hatchway behind Jim. Reeves guaranteed me access to your resources. And you'll get them when we hit Luna. What seems to be the trouble? Cassie looked past Jim to Reeves, sucking on her butt again to keep himself functioning in freefall. The slight skunky odor of vaporized cannabis wafted from the receiving corridor onto the bridge. Jim kept his eyes pointed at Cassie. Our godmother doesn't want to live up to her end of the bargain. Ms. Orenthal. <sighs> Val, grant level three voice access to Jim Hartman on tracking and communications computers. Affirmative, Captain. She wasn't going to let Reeves dress her down in front of the hired help. Cassie nudged the edge of the nav blister with her left hand, pushing herself into a slow, flat spin until she faced her guests. She extended her knee and caught the wall with it, slowing herself to a stop. Satisfied? Jim nodded, almost imperceptibly. Thank you. And you? What do you need? Permission to enter the bridge. So he wanted to have the meeting here. Well, it was less cramped than the galley, and he probably wouldn't get vertigo like on the cargo deck, so it was as good a place as any. <sighs> Granted. Cassie tucked her legs up and righted herself so that she was on the same axis as her passengers. Reeves glided past Jim, who stayed at his anchored position just outside the hatchway. You too. Jim, brooding like a bad stereotype of his profession, let go his grip on the hatchway and floated on in. How long until we ground? Reeves found a spot near the co-pilot's chair, less than two meters from her, which meant she had to deal with the smell. Keeping the vapor in the air would help him, which meant that as long as his groundhog carcass was floating on this level, Cassie couldn't kick up the exhaust. The last thing she wanted was little globs of politician vomit floating around near her control equipment. Fifty hours, give or take, once we're under acceleration again. Cassie felt herself drifting subtly away from the wall and reached back for a hand grip so she wouldn't get stuck in a two-hour drift across the empty space of the bridge. Give or take? Jim, at least, wasn't smoking her shit or living with her sister, and once the job was done, she wouldn't have to have anything further to do with him, earning him a slightly leading position on her internal least-irritating-man-in-the-room scorecard. The last leg depends on the traffic at Luna City Ground Control. We could slide right in, or we could be held up at the ring. Charters sit low on the priority list. Jim found a hand grip near the flight control computer, settled against the nav blister, and looked expectantly to their mutual master. Reeves exhaled a thin cloud of vapors. So we have, what, 12 hours before we go back under sedation? Cassie flitted her eyes to the binary countdown display behind Jim. Eight. Now. Reeves repositioned himself, as if vainly trying to change the arrangement of his internal organs. Everything I tell you from here on out is confidential unless I explicitly say otherwise. Reeves fixed Cassie with a dark look. If she'd harbored any doubts that he was perfectly capable of ordering her death, they'd not have survived it. After what he'd done to Joe two years ago, she had no illusions that Jade's cozy family life fantasy was anything other than wishful thinking. Do we understand one another? Cassie jerked her head sharply, once. Doug's gaze flitted across to Jim. You're already my client. This is redundant. Very well. I've received some disturbing news from my staff on Luna. It seems that our Mr. Walters screwed up when setting a bomb in an access hatch at the end of the spaceport. There's a board meeting on the 20th to discuss the matter. Inconvenient. Without Briggs, we need to move fast. I need the two of you to find out who was pulling Scott Walter's strings. Give me something. Anything I can use. What about the security leak? 
Jim was brimming with helpful suggestions today. The thought of the groundhog troweling his way through her organization did not fill her heart with endless fountains of glee. She was going to have to do something about him. He came to Nineveh to sell classified information to Mr. Briggs. He had a source, or a controller. Find it, and you'll find the leak. Cassie took a grim comfort in the fact that the man still fought like a chess player, even though, twice now, she'd known him to let pawns slip through. First, when Joe helped her get away, and then when Joss slipped his net. What about Loxcore? I'll deal with Loxcore. Jim leaned out toward Cassie as if he were sharing a secret. You gotta love a guy who doesn't know when he's beaten. Excuse me? Cassie knew where Jim was going and tried to dissuade him with a little shake of her head, but he wasn't having any. We're not the hired help. This is a conspiracy. You wanted me in? We made a deal. You say you need me to do this, then you're not exactly in a position to be keeping secrets. I see. Reeves, pale green as he was from the freefall, seemed to darken back to his natural color as he stretched out, as if trying to figure out how to tower over Jim when there was no up to look down on him from. He looked to Cassie, but she shook her head and demurred. She wasn't going to fight him on this one. For now, she was content to follow her marching orders just as far as she had to, and no farther. She followed his eyes over to Jim, who stared at him as if they were rats about to gnaw on the same bit of cheese. I read something once by Benjamin Franklin. Maybe you read it too in college. Three may keep a secret. He held on to the punchline for a moment. Jim clearly didn't know the rest of it. So long as two of them are dead. Jim blanched, but quickly covered it up. Cassie couldn't fault him for it. She barely suppressed her own shudder in the memory of Joe. A good conspiracy does not run on that kind of trust, Mr. Hardman. It runs on another kind. I trust you to keep your end of the bargain because that's the kind of man you are. You trust me to help you find your wife because that's the kind of man I am. And Ms. Orenthal has her own reasons to want our operation to succeed. You're an idiot. Am I? You're going to need someone who knows how to run an investigation if you're going to get Lockscore under control. You'll need leverage for I know what I'll need, Mr. Hartman. And I know where to find it. And I know where to find you when the time comes. And yes, it will come. Until then, I need you to find Walter's controller. Jim turned to Cassie. You know where this guy lived? She nodded. And where he worked? He worked for one of my businesses. I'm going to need access to your records and your people. You'll get it. You're going to come in as a new bodyguard. That'll give you access to everyone in the organization. So when I find this guy... Of course, he would assume the culprit had to be a man. Predictable groundhog behavior. He's your problem. I don't kill people. Reeves pursed his lips, an evil smile creeping across his face. No, that won't be necessary. I think there are more productive ways to deal with problems like this. Don't you think so, Miss Orenthal? He obviously expected her to know what he was talking about, but whether he meant Jade, or Joe, or Joss, or someone else entirely, she didn't really give a damn. She nodded as if conceding the point so that he'd finish. The pot was getting to him, and he was having too much fun playing innuendo games for the meeting to be productive much longer. Now, unless either of you has anything else... Cassie and Jim both shook their heads. Then, if you please, Mr. Hartman, I need to consult with our captain in private. Without a word... Jim kicked away from the wall and ricocheted off the edge of the hatch, bouncing off the bridge and down the ladder like a sullen basketball. Once he was well out of earshot, Cassie turned her attention to Reeves. 
Well? You're unusually quiet. Is this going to be a problem? He jerked his head toward the vacant hatchway. No, this isn't. Something else, then? Cassie turned away from him, curling up toward the nav blister. Once his pathetic, space-sick, dope-smoking slug of a body was safely at her back, she said, It'll keep. If it will compromise... It won't. She looked out at the sunward sky in front of the ship. Somewhere out there, Joss Kyle was busy hiding from Curie's sensors, and whether he got whatever he was going after or not, the next few weeks might spell the end of everything she'd worked for since she was 12 years old. If that happened... She wanted one last prize before Luna burned around her. Reeves wasn't moving. She could see his purulent reflection behind her, leaning against that chair as if there were gravity to worry about. He was waiting for an answer. She had to give him one. Cassie took her PPD off her belt and decrypted it, the flat, ink-like display resuming its place in her checklist. Measuring her voice so that every bit of it sounded like she barely considered killing him worth the time to think about, she muttered, When this is over, I'll come for you. You're safe until then. You won't find it as easy as you think. Maybe not. I've always collected my debts. When the time comes, I'll find you. She saw him nod to himself, as if satisfied with her answer. He let go the chair and floated the three meters to the dorsal hatchway. Once there, he stopped as if suddenly remembering something. She watched his reflection as his head gradually shook from side to side, as if he were chiding himself for missing something terribly obvious. Why are you still here? Oh, I'm sorry, I just realized. He sounded like he was suppressing a laugh. He took a breath, cleared his throat, and started again. I just realized why it is you're coming after me. When you do, be sure to ask for the rest of the story. I think you'll be pleased. Cassie set her jaw and closed her eyes. She wouldn't rise to the bait. A few more hours and everybody would be strapped down. Then, they'd be off her ship. I'll remember that. Remember this, too. Those that die well often deserve far better from the people they're protecting. Before she could find a gun so that she could lose her temper properly, he was through the hatch with the door closed behind him. Outside, the stars still shone. Somewhere out there, fugitives still flew. Some things, at least, were dependable. For now. Chapter 8 Space Affairs Committee, Washington, D.C. 20 November 2129. Mr. Chairman, I protest. This is an improper procedural move. Your objection is noted. The Honorable Senator from Massachusetts wasn't about to let that Savannah Hicks Sullen derail his meeting now. Unfortunately, we must move this matter to the Senate floor as soon as possible. This resolution was drafted by this committee months ago in case anything like this happened. Now we have a fleet of Persian warships moving toward Gagarin, toward Sidon, toward Luna. We cannot wait any longer. The resolution is carried and is hereby submitted to the full session. Bill Shelley gaveled the closed session of the Space Affairs Committee to a close and retreated quickly to the safety of the rear exit where the press couldn't reach him. Ordering the attack on... 
ordering the attack at Sidon and the others that day laid his neck on the headsman's block. His actions in the committee today gave the headsman his cravat, ponytail, and collar. Now his neck was exposed, and the next couple moves would either bring the axe down on him or grant him a stay just long enough to kick the cowled fucker right in the balls. Bill, with his obligatory entourage in tow, shouldered his way past the throng of reporters at his door. He left his staff in the outer office, muttering a gruff, Cancel my appointments. to his secretary. The quiet, soundproofed walls of his Capitol Hill office, which was not the one he preferred to work in, helped quiet the adrenaline spurting into his veins from every available gland. He took a couple deep breaths. He was well into it now. He'd managed to follow instructions to the letter and still put himself in a position to make sure the Persians paid for their presumption. They wanted the declaration of martial law that his committee just referred upward to the Senate. They wanted the declaration of war against the Persian Empire that was almost guaranteed to follow it. The crud-eating bastards who ran him wanted it all. And he was happy to give it to them. But, of course, he wasn't president yet. He wouldn't be president for another three years unless he got supremely lucky. Finding a way to hasten his accession was not something he was even willing to consider. For now, he'd need to get access to the White House and its foreign policy wonks another way. Bill sat down on his chair and mouthed a silent prayer for calm and guidance to Ahura Mazda, then punched the intercom. Yes, Senator? His secretary's voice was every bit as grating as it had been on the day he hired him. Good for keeping the constituents at bay. Give me the White House Chief of Staff. It's an emergency. Chapter 9. Fugitive. Destination Unknown. 16 November, 2129. Five cards dead. Joker's wild. Allie dealt the initial round carefully, the metallic filaments in the paper helping the cards float down to the felt and the table's gentle magnetic field. It wasn't a good simulation of gravity, but it made gameplay possible. Her opponent, seated opposite her, as much as anyone could be seated in freefall, shifted his body and then, to cover up the flinch, reached out to pick his cards up as they came to him. She was getting to him. Every time she called wild cards, every time she bluffed him, every time she raised an eyebrow at him daring him to challenge her, every time he flinched. Across from her, the traitor, who laughingly called himself a revolutionary as he spread destruction across the solar system, mulled over his cards and tossed two chips at the center of the table. A conservative opening. He was getting more careful the last few days. It was one of a set of things that had Allie, despite her imprisonment, feeling reckless and powerful. The fact that she was alive after firing on him, again, spoke volumes. Joss Kyle, Reuben Briggs, was famous for his cruelty. He had vivisected men who got in his way, tortured to death women who came close to catching him, bribed and cheated anyone he could to save his skin, and yet, here she was, alive. He could have killed her at Sidon. He could have shot her in the bathroom at Phalanx, where he'd merely kicked her nose in. He could have spaced her when she slipped aboard or given her a lethal injection when he had her on the table in sickbay. Joss hadn't kept her alive just for the company. He had plans for her, or at least fantasies. 
His eyes lingered at her mouth, on her neck, and other places they wouldn't linger if he was just leering. Whatever the plans were, they went far beyond merely tripping her into bed, but the fact that his eyes lingered told her that, appearances aside, she had the upper hand. Without Jim's brooding clouding her judgment, she could finally see clearly. Allie called the bet, rearranging her card so that her three diamonds were all next to each other. Three. Joss, not bothering to conceal a grimace, picked the trio of cards from the middle of his hand and set them face down on the galley table. Allie pursed her lips, making sure he saw the little bit of a gloat. The lady isn't smiling on you anymore. She dealt him three cards from the top of the pile, then discarded her two black cards, hoping that her draw would get her two more diamonds. <laughs> Luck? Anyone who trusts that fickle bitch deserves what he gets. Joss smugly retrieved his cards and shuffled them into his hand. I prefer to make my own. He led with another small bet. Come to think of it, she didn't know if he was good for any of the money he owed her. Sure, when she brought him in, she'd get plenty of cash, but she still bristled at the thought that he might stiff her. She raised him ten bucks. Sooner or later, you're going to run out of cards to palm. I don't think so. He tossed another five in. The world has a way of presenting options if you keep your eyes peeled. Allie looked down at her cards, shaking her head as if Joss were a slow but amusing child. If you were half the man your PR says you are, you'd have killed me by now. She reflexively reached for her pile of chips, but stopped before she saw his bet. In fact, now that I mention it... She looked up and caught him straight in the eyes. She knew he'd be looking. I think you're full of shit. She thought she caught a small reaction at the corner of his left eye. A flinch that he couldn't quite suppress? Maybe. Joss shrugged disarmingly, like a good little political worm. <laughs> Not an uncommon opinion, my wife said the same thing. Said it everyone I ever worked for. Are you gonna play? Don't you think the game's getting old? Have it your way. He folded his hand and set it face down in front of him, his face a mask of exhaustion and boredom, and pushed back from the table. I'll go read. Joss kicked the floor, floated up past the top of the table, grasped a hand grip recessed in the wall behind him, and pushed himself toward the galley door. Aren't you going to finish the hand? I'm perfectly capable of giving myself a hand job, thank you. He reached the door and repositioned his body for the next stretch of his flight. Don't you dare walk out on me. She didn't expect to say it, but there the words were, hanging there in the air next to him in all their acidic glory. They brought him up short. The muscles in his back tensed beneath his shirt as if he were suddenly afraid that she'd smuggled a gun in somehow. Allie decided to play her hunch for a long bluff. Let's up the stakes. He stayed in the doorway, his hand on the grab bar, his back to her. He didn't turn around. I'm listening. Allie chose her words carefully. She was pretty sure that she had the leverage to push him over, but if she played it wrong, she could find herself doped and locked up until they got wherever they were going. Destination. What? I want to know where we're going. <laughs> we're not going anywhere. When this ship reaches its destination, you're going to fall asleep. And when you wake up, you'll be free to go wherever you want to. I'm taking you back with me. No, oh, you think so. Joss kept his grip and tapped his foot against the bulkhead. His body pivoted around his hands until he was floating roughly sideways, facing her. He looked her over as if sizing her up. 
Since you woke up, you've sat there playing cards. You haven't recorded a confession or prayed. You haven't tried to call your husband. Allie kept her poker face up, a blank slate to ward off the amateur psychiatrist's mind probes. It was one thing to read someone at cards. It was quite another to read a stranger's innermost thoughts. For all his conceit, Joss Kyle didn't know a thing about her. From the way he behaved, she doubted he knew anything about being human, and he damn well didn't know a thing about how a woman might react to being trapped aboard an interplanetary life raft with a policy wonk who is perpetually out of his depth. Chauvinism was the pet sin of politicians everywhere. No point. You'll have them all locked up with biometrics. Huh. Joss smirked and returned to the table. He scooped up his hand and rearranged the cards as if consulting them for his fortune. <laughs> I wouldn't have stopped you when I met you. No, I don't think you're going back there. I don't think you know what you're going to do. Are you going to bet? Allie laid her cards out, face down, one at a time, and poised her hand to turn over the rightmost one. All right. I win. You tell me where we're going. You win. She quickly shunted through everything she knew to find something he needed. If she was lucky, it would be the thing he was keeping her alive for. And I'll tell you how I got the job working for Bill Shelley. At the mention of that name, his head snapped up. His eyes seemed to bore through her for a minute, and he chewed his bottom lip like he hadn't seen a woman in a long, long time. Then he stopped, as if he'd made a decision. <sighs> nice try, Alyssa. The man who pretended to be Joss Kyle folded his cards up into a neat little pile, then placed them face down on the table. He pushed off the table with his fingers and floated, more slowly this time, to the door. Keep working on it and you might be able to sell used cars in another couple years. He caught the edge of the door and hooked a right around the bulkhead. Allie abandoned her cards and followed him into the hall. Think you can't win? Believe it or not, he didn't so much as look over his shoulder at her. I'm not as dumb as your average mark. You're up to something. And the sun is a ball of burning hydrogen. She was glad they were in freefall. Had they been walking, she'd have had to run to catch him, and she didn't really want to look that desperate. Tell me where we're going, or- Alyssa? The bridge door slid open in front of him. Wherever we land, you'll like it better than where we left. He floated through, leaving her to grab a floor grip before she crashed headlong into the double door which slid shut behind him, but not before he could say, Trust me. And that was the problem. She did trust him. The man who ruined everything in her life, who'd trapped her here between planets in his own private hell. The man who'd weaseled out of every trap and betrayed every ally he'd ever had. It was stupid. It was childish. It was utterly insane. Alyssa Hartman trusted Joss Kyle to keep his word. And she did not know why. You've been listening to Episode 2 of Free Will and Other Compulsions, Book 2 of the Antithesis Progression, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Mark Smith as the search team assistant, Michael Lamangelo as the search team leader, Andrea Fender as the Moon Girl, Nathan Lowell as Senator William Shelley, Danny Shade as the secretary, Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, Derek Moore as Jim Hartman, George Klensos as Douglas Reeves, Kim the Comic Book Goddess as Val, and Miss Calendar as Alyssa Hartman. 
Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The recording is copyright 2013 Artistic Whispers Productions, and the book is copyright 1999 and 2011. J. Daniel Sawyer. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Man, I love listening to podcasts. You know what I really like? Podcast fiction. What if there was a website that I could go to to get a whole bunch of really cool short stories in all kinds of different genres? And what if, instead of just one narrator, there was a male and female narrator, so I wouldn't have to hear the female parts read in some high-pitched voice by a guy? And what if they had cool European accents, just to make it that much more enjoyable to listen to? Man, listening to all those stories really makes me want to write my own story, but I don't know what to write about. What if there was a website where I could go and get inspired to write my own story by looking at a photo to get story ideas? Wait a second, I can get all of this at everyphototells.com. Enjoy the fiction, get inspired, and write your own. everyphototells.com Military and schemings and runaways. Oh my. God, I sound like George Takei. Looking over every scene in this episode, I can only think, Oh boy, this can't be good. Granted, I know what's coming, so I'm a little bit biased, but... Well, you'll see. Well, I am a day late this week, my apologies for that. We have been swamped with preparations for the Crudrat campaign, which you can find out about at www.crudrat.com. So you do have your episode, but it's a day late. Sorry about that. Last week, you heard the first episode of a new non-fiction podcast called The Next 10,000 Hours, where Kitty Nakian and I talk about the ins and outs of running a small studio and bring you previews of new books and productions and other such goodies along with rampant, inane silliness. During that show, I mentioned that if you look back a few items in your podcast feeds, you'll see a string of EPUB files representing a complete, serialized version of And Then She Was Gone, the first of my Clark Lantham mystery series. It turns out that this is only half true. The serial only appeared in the Uber feed, not in the Antithesis feed, while this episode and the next 10,000 hours appear in both. This is important because a lot of the goodies I've got scheduled will only appear in the Uber feed, so be sure to subscribe to the Uber feed. Just go to the website, look in the right-hand column, and you will find the links. Just keep repeating to yourself, Uber feed, Uber feed. Whisper yourself to sleep with its glorious tones. Um, excuse me, I got a little carried away there. My entire world right now is swallowed up in production. With the podcast active again, we've got to keep the pipes full, and we are working round the clock to get you the content you've been waiting for all this time. So thank you for bearing with us. We're kicking ass on your behalf every day, making the world a better place for consumers of fine science fiction everywhere, and enriching the environment just by being here. Or, you know, 
making audiobooks. Speaking of which, the other big project coming up is the crowdfunding campaign for the full cast audio production of Gail Carragher's Crud Rat, which you can find out all about at www.crudrat.com. You can even listen to the first chapter read by Veronica Jaguer with some new music by Danny Shade. Because if you thought Gail could only do funny, well, you're in for a hell of a surprise because this book kicks ass. Since it's early days in the story, I won't keep you very long, but there is so much more coming soon. Until then, remember that you can send me questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats via email at feedback at jdsawyer.net. You can leave comments on the blog at jdsawyer.net. You can tweet me on Twitter at dsawyer, or you can leave voicemail at 612-567-7595. That's a new number since predestination. The number is 612-567-7595. And if you're enjoying yourself, please do tell your friends. Post a review on iTunes, blog about us, tweet about us, and pelt your enemies with CD and memory stick copies to get people hooked. And remember that you can buy my books just about everywhere, including signed paperbacks at www.jdsawyer.net, or you can leave a tip in the tip jar at jdsawyer.net, a portion of which goes to our masterful composer, Danny Shade. What can I say? We need you guys. See you next week with another episode of The Next 10,000 Hours and the week after that with another installment of Free Will. And until then, I leave you with the nagging questions. Will Percy survive his surgery? If so, what will he do to find his redemption? Where is Joss headed? And what will Allie do when he gets there? Is Jim going to be able to do his job with Cassie and Doug Cock blocking him? And perhaps most importantly, what will happen to the Moon Girl now that the search and rescue party has found her? Find out next time. And until then, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game. <laughs>